Hi, this is Andy Katz, host of March Madness 365, presented by Grammarly. This week on the podcast, listen as we break down the latest AP poll and give you insights on my updated Power 36. Listen to March Madness 365 with Andy Katz, presented by Grammarly, wherever you get your podcasts. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that gives your team an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. Grammarly works seamlessly across 500,000 apps and websites. Get personalized on-brand writing help everywhere your team works. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. Joseph D'Angelo is facing 13 homicide charges and 13 charges of kidnap with intent to rob in connection with the Golden State Killer crime spree. While law enforcement believes him to be responsible for the many rapes attributed to the East Area Rapist Spree, due to the statute of limitations, they cannot file rape charges. At the time of this recording, Joseph D'Angelo has not yet entered a plea and is awaiting trial. This case is why we lock our doors at night. Attacked all over California. The community was taken hostage. Brutal homicides. One of the most prolific serial killers in the history of this state, if not in this nation. campaign to help identify the Golden State Killer. It's been nearly a year since the arrest of the Golden State Killer suspect, Joseph James D'Angelo, who is currently being held in the Sacramento County Jail awaiting trial. And while the court appearances in association with this case over the last 12 months have been brief and generated little news, there have been a couple of big developments in recent weeks. The prosecution announced that they would seek the death penalty in this case should Joseph James D'Angelo be convicted at trial. And we will address that huge development, which came on the heels of California Governor Gavin Newsom declaring a moratorium on capital punishment next week with public defender Krizan Malouf from the San Francisco Public Defender's Office. Today, in an interview taped before the death penalty announcement, Sacramento County District Attorney Anne-Marie Schubert discusses the decision to prosecute the Golden State Killer case jointly with the other five jurisdictions affected, and the timeline to trial from the prosecution's perspective. But first, on March 15, 2019, Sam Stanton of the Sacramento Bee revealed that the Golden State Killer suspect Joseph James D'Angelo had spent some time in the Sacramento County Jail prior to his arrest in the Golden State Killer case. We spoke with Sam uh, just a few days after this bombshell story broke. Hello and welcome, Sam Stanton. Hi, how are you folks? Good. So, Sam, you've been in journalism since 1982, according to your Twitter bio. How long have you been covering the Sacramento area? Uh, I've been here since about 1990. So, yeah, you've been very familiar then with the East Area Rapist Golden State Killer case. Yes. How long have you been following it and, and how big of a surprise was the arrest in April for you? Well, the arrest was a shock to everyone. Frankly, when they would hold these periodic press conferences up here saying, if anyone knows anything, here's the number to call, I wouldn't go because I knew there was no way they were going to ever catch a suspect. Uh, so you can imagine my surprise that morning in April when they said they were holding a press conference on this. And you were like, well, I guess I should go to this one. <laughs> yeah, I fought like uh, like the Dickens to get to that. They had locked the gate. By the time I got there, I had to scale the uh, like 12-foot steel gate outside the coroner's office just to get in. I remember that gate. I didn't know they closed it. That's crazy. Yeah, it was a problem. So tell us uh, what you went looking for and then what you found that you published on March 15th. Well, as soon as he was arrested... 
everyone in the media started scouring local courthouses looking for any kind of trace of who this guy was. And one of the places that I looked was in Placer County, outside of Sacramento. And uh, I went out to Roseville and asked for a file that had the name D'Angelo in it. It was a civil suit of some sort. And they couldn't find it. And so I put in a request. And frankly, after a while, I forgot about it. I assumed it was unrelated to this case. And then uh, a couple of Fridays ago, this envelope showed up in my mailbox at the Sacramento Bee in the newsroom. And I opened it up and it had a little post-it note that said, sorry for the delay. And it was the court file. Wow. Nice. And so uh, tell us what you found in there. Well, it was interesting. This was a civil suit that D'Angelo had filed. And it all stemmed from a July 1995 incident where he had gone to a gas station. And it was one of those pay-at-the-pump deals. And he's pumping gas. And apparently the pump malfunctioned and he didn't get as much as he had paid for. So he went into the attendance office there, the little shop, and he tried to explain it to the clerk. And the, the clerk apparently couldn't speak English well enough to understand what was going on. And D'Angelo, who supposedly has a temper, must have made some kind of uh, angry move or something and left. The clerk decided that the man who'd been talking to him was trying to hold the store up. So he called the uh, authorities and apparently turned in the license plate number. So D'Angelo drives away not knowing any of this. Eight months later, he gets a notice in the mail that says, hey, you've won Super Bowl tickets. If you show up at this auditorium in downtown uh, Sacramento, you can come claim them. So he shows up. It's part of this elaborate sting that local authorities were putting on. Everybody who had outstanding warrants were getting these letters. And so they're all showing up to get their Super Bowl tickets. And of course, once they showed up, they ended up getting arrested. So D'Angelo gets booked into the Sacramento County Jail. He's there for several hours. He bails out. He ends up getting an attorney. It costs him about $5,000. And they eventually get these charges dropped. They realize it's a misunderstanding. But he's angry. So he files this million-dollar lawsuit against the owners of the gas station and against the clerk, and it winds its way through court, and eventually he gets a settlement. So no one realized until, until – uh, the sheriff's department didn't realize until I called him a couple of weeks ago. You had him. You had him in your jail in the midst of this nationwide manhunt, but there was no way for them to know it. Wow. Wow. Now, now, like you mentioned, you know, D'Angelo is described by his neighbors as having quite a temper, especially in the 90s. Uh, he is said to intimidate and scare kids and women easily, but uh, always seemed to back away from confrontations with men. Do you know if the gas station attendant was a woman? No. The, from my reading of the court documents, I think it was a man. And there's no real description of what took place in there other than the guy thought he was being held up. I had heard, I, I had been hearing about this case for a while. I just couldn't find it. You know, we've been, we've all been digging for various court records that have been buried in different places here. I talked to the attorney who represented him in the civil suit, and he remembered Joe, as he referred to him, as a nice guy. He didn't even put two and two together about uh, who he was all these years later. Yeah, that's amazing, right? I mean, you think that after all the press that got, does he still live in the area? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so you see Joe D'Angelo's mugshot all over television and the name, and he didn't make that connection. That's pretty amazing, too. Yeah, and apparently it was the second time that D'Angelo has been arrested here. You know, the first was that 1979 right. uh, shoplifting incident. 
Right. Yeah. And that happened, you know, only about a, you know, a year and, and, and a half, I guess, after the uh, the majority double homicide. So you'd feel like the East Area Rapist would have been still more in the cops' minds, I guess. It wasn't that far off from when that big spree happened, whereas obviously in nineteen mid-90s, it had died down, I'm assuming. Yeah, nobody's thinking about that first then. Right, right. And there was there was no DNA, you know? I mean, right. they weren't... It's not like they were taking routine samples of DNA and, and, you know, uploading them to databases back then. Right, and also at the time of this incident and arrest, this is before Paul Holes even connects the Northern California Contra Costa rape kits. So definitely way before North and South are connected even in terms of right. the spree. So you mentioned that they sent him a letter to his house because he had an outstanding warrant. I mean, it seems like process-wise they would have sent a warrant to his house or at least a, a notice to appear in court. He apparently got nothing. And it's it's very confusing about where the case originated. Yeah. What I've been told is that the state justice department organized this sting, but the, because there are no criminal records reflecting this charge against him in this alleged gas station robbery. No one can find what agency was involved or how this whole thing uh, came about. Well, it seems the incident itself probably ended up being a ginormous misunderstanding. So I'm assuming if you're the the prosecuting jurisdiction, actually, now you have him and you look at the case, it probably didn't take too much to get the charges dismissed. Right. He ended up getting a declaration of his factual innocence. Right. But, you know, those those files should be somewhere. There should be, at, at the very least, there should be an entry somewhere saying this case came in and was dismissed or disposed of in this manner. But uh, it's, it's, you know, lost to history, apparently. Were you able to track down the gas station owner or the attendant? No, and I didn't spend a lot of time on it. It was a very common name, and to me, the story was he was in the jail, and no one knew it. Yeah, of course, yeah. Well, in the same jail that he's in now. Right, exactly. Have you heard anything about when he might enter a plea? No, and that can, you know, you can go well over a year before entering a plea in the way the system works here. Uh, I think our we had a death penalty case that just ended. In fact, it ended the day that D'Angelo was arrested. And I don't think that defendant entered a plea for two years. Hmm. Now, have you been able to get any info from the public defenders? Yeah, some. Anything you can talk about? (laughs) Well, uh, you know, uh, there's not a lot. You know, those of us who've been here a long time know some of the some of the folks are involved on both sides of the case, obviously, because we've covered them for years. The first hearing he had after the arrest, I was able to find out from lawyers on both sides that um, there was this emergency hearing to try and stop a warrant that had been issued that no one knew anything about. And the warrant was they wanted to take photographs of him completely naked. Uh, Specifically, they wanted to take photographs of his penis because of uh, accounts from victims in the past that the rapist who assaulted them had a very distinctively small uh, organ, to be blunt. Um, but we know they were not able to stop it, and those pictures were taken, right? Correct. Those pictures were taken. This is also fascinating. Um, just interesting for you being there on the ground and, and being able to talk to all those parties involved. So, so you feel pretty comfortable in your discussions with everybody that we should be able to see a full trial on this? Well, there's no way to plead out. So, yeah, you know, obviously the victim's families 
want to see a trial, they show up for most of these hearings and they tell us afterwards, you know, we just want to see his face. We want him to see us. We want him to know that we're still here waiting for um, for what they consider justice. And so uh, there's there's no indication that there won't be a trial, but it's uh, it's going to be a ways off and it's going to be an unbelievable circus given the the limitations of our courthouse here. Yeah. Now, in his December showing, he, you know, started looking really, really thin. Do we feel like his health will hold up? You know, he looked fine when I saw him. When he when he first appeared in court after his arrest, he looked completely dazed and bewildered, of course, and he was in that wheelchair for at least one of the appearances. I think it might have been one or two. But since then, he's he's been standing, you know, erect and not... Um, not slumped over. Uh, he doesn't speak. Uh, he just stands in the cage in the courtroom and then whispers to his attorneys and is uh, is ushered out back into the cell. But we're not hearing of any kind of hunger strike or medical issues, right? We're, it's just no, and uh, they wouldn't they wouldn't discuss medical issues um, either. I've heard, right. frankly, that he spends all of his time pacing back and forth in the cell. Uh, he's had no visitors that I've been able to determine. Yeah. So he's he's living his uh, lonely existence, you know, in the Sacramento County Jail. And what's it feel like to the community? I mean, you're there boots on the ground. You know, we've talked to D.A. Schubert's office and, and her and obviously law enforcement and some of the the survivors and family of the murdered victims. But does the rest of the community kind of feel this relief? Like, you know, everyone always talks about how he terrorized that city and the city changed. Did it did it really feel like that kind of change when the arrest came down? Yeah, it was all anyone was talking about, you know, throughout the community. I, I didn't live here at the time, but people who did would just grab me and say, you don't understand. You just don't get the absolute terror that people in the community felt. I went out to a cul-de-sac in one neighborhood where a young man had spotted a prowler and chased him, and he ended up getting shot in the stomach, and he survived. But the authorities always thought, this was the East Area Rapist trying to break into a home in that cul-de-sac. And as I talked to neighbors who'd lived there for years and years, they told me this story about how after that incident, they all went out and bought shotguns, and they took turns guarding the entrance to the cul-de-sac 24 hours a day, and police would drive by and wave at them as they're holding their shotguns because they knew why they were out there and what was going on. Yeah. Was this the Rodney Miller story? Yeah, right. That's quite amazing that he survived and everything he lost through that. Yeah, it's incredible. Well, we're super excited that you're up there and, and breaking these kinds of stories. Um, you know, it's a it's a big case. It's complicated. And I'm sure there's probably more stuff to be found. Uh, there is. There are some things we're working on. So we'll see. <laughs> all right. Excellent. Well, well, good luck with all of that. Um, listen, thank you so much, Sam Stanton, for your investigative work and sharing with us the stuff you found. Um, now, you can follow Sam on Twitter at Stanton Sam for all the latest breaking news out of Sacramento. Uh, and just, you know, thank you again for being here. Thanks for having me. Sacramento County District Attorney Anne-Marie Schubert is leading the prosecution of the Golden State Killer case and explains the decision to have the six affected California jurisdictions prosecute jointly in Sacramento, why suspect Joseph James D'Angelo has yet to enter a plea, and what the timeline to trial looks like from the prosecution's perspective. 
Hi, this is Andy Katz, host of March Madness 365, presented by Grammarly. This week on the podcast, listen as we break down the latest AP poll and give you insights on my updated Power 36. Listen to March Madness 365 with Andy Katz, presented by Grammarly, wherever you get your podcasts. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that gives your team an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. Grammarly works seamlessly across 500,000 apps and websites. Get personalized on-brand writing help everywhere your team works. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. Please welcome one of the key players in the Golden State Killer case and the woman leading the prosecution, Sacramento County District Attorney Anne-Marie Schubert. Nice to have you. Thank you for having me. D.A. Schubert, you've been pretty involved in this case for decades, trying to get answers for your community, but also for your family, as you yourself remember the time the East Area Rapist terrorized Sacramento. You insisted persistence was key and that that persistence has finally paid off. Now, with a suspect in custody, the case really belongs to you and the other D.A.s now. How does it feel to get to this side of the story? Well, I think I've said this before. This this case has been a journey for justice, and, and we're still on that path. And the path we're at right now is the prosecution path. So, you know, we're at that stage that, you know, we're going to move forward, and ultimately a decision will be made in a courtroom. But it feels... You know, I mean, it's been a long journey, but we're now at this point where we can proceed forward and, you know, somebody's charged with these crimes. Did you always believe we'd get to this point or was it more of like, you know, all right, we're going to keep working hard and hopefully it happens? You know, from my perspective, you know, I know the power of DNA. I knew and anybody that knows it understands that, you know, in these types of cold cases, the answer is in the DNA. And I'm not saying on this particular case, but in general. And so, um, you know, over the years, you know, you can put 10 people in a room and ask them what they thought, and you might get 10 different answers. But for me on a personal level, in these cases, not talking specifically, but in general, the answer's out there on cold cases. And it's a matter of that passion and persistence to find it. And we owe it as public safety representatives and advocates for victims to find that answer, whether or not the person who ultimately is responsible is alive or dead, whether or not he lives around the corner, whether he's now moved to another country, we owe it to our community. We owe it to the victims. You know, that's what our mission is, is to find the answer, irrespective of whether the person is alive or dead. Well, I know the community is very grateful to you and your team and everybody who worked on this case for all the hard work. I wanted to ask you about, I guess, the biggest turning point since the arrest was the historic decision to prosecute this as a joint jurisdictional case in Sacramento. Everyone seemed to assume Orange County would take the lead on their first four homicide charges. Uh, can you tell us how and why uh, it was decided to combine all the charges? Well, there was a number of meeting. Well, the, the decision to combine the charges to me is really what's in the best interest of the case, what's in the best interest of the victims, what's in the best interest of efficiency um, and what we call judicial economy, meaning let's not try the case five times and cost the taxpayers five times as much money as it would otherwise cost. So trying it as a, as a joint prosecution to me that's what all of the DAs want because we know that at the end of the day, our our mission is you know, to, to do what's in the best interest of victims and, you know, the particular case. And so I don't think that necessarily was a hard question to answer. Um, but, you know, we met several times 
And, you know, a decision was made that Sacramento was the right venue. Now, as I say this, though, people need to understand this is a joint prosecution. It happens to be housed in Sacramento, but it is very much a team prosecution where, you know, representatives from each county are part of that team. So what what does it mean to have the case tried in Sacramento? From a personal point of view, I mean, I I think it's in somewhat fitting, you know, it in some ways, many people feel that, you know, the congregation of the majority, the, at least the initial outset, happened in Sacramento. He, the individual was arrested here in Sacramento. You know, I'm proud. I'm proud of the team we've put together, and I'm proud for it to be in Sacramento County. And so I think, you know, it's something that we're going to all look back on and just say that, you know, we're incredibly proud of the work that was done on this case. And it was an absolutely 100% joint effort by each of the counties that has cases. Right. And I think it's also important to note that a lot of the survivors, people that are associated with the case that were alive during this case, still live in Sacramento. So uh, it also makes it easier, I think, for the victims to kind of be part of that journey for justice. Yeah, that's true. I mean, there's many, obviously, you know, there's many, many people that live up here and some, not just Sacramento, but Northern California. And some of the family members that I think that may have even lived in Southern California may, you know, may be living up here. So those are all factors we considered. But, you know, I just, I have tremendous respect for all of the elected DAs that were part of the conversations. And, and now, you know, in Orange County, they have a new DA who's, who's going to be great as well. So, you know, at the end of the day, we're all, we all have the same mission in mind. That's to seek justice, serve justice and do justice and, and to really meet the needs of these victims and their families. So, you know, only sharing, obviously, what you can. This was always thought of, obviously, as the original Night Stalker cases and the majority murders. But charge one of the complaint is the Claude Snelling homicide coming out of Tulare County. When did that get added to the mix? Um, I'd have to look at the complaint. But obviously, at the outset, he was charged with the majority killings. And then Ventura had charged cases as well. And then the Snelling case after, you know, they had... Uh, an opportunity to review and fully investigate and make make a decision on do we believe we can prove this case beyond reasonable doubt that it was added. You know, it's it's amazing that after all this time, some of the rape victims are finally going to get their day in court. Uh, from talking to the survivors, this is also a very complicated journey for them. Some are hesitant about reliving this in a courtroom. Others are ready to see it all come together. What are you as the DA and your office doing to help these victim survivors through the process? Well, each of the offices has a program called Victim Witness. And so we have advocates that help them through the process, make sure they understand, you know, what's happening when the next court dates are, really to be there kind of as their advocate inside and outside the courtroom. So those advocates are working hand in hand with individuals um, that are victims in this case or their family members. And what are we seeing as the the next stages of the trial and and how long until we see those? Like, you know, we know this is going to take a while, but are there benchmarks in a year, two year, three year, five years that we kind of know that's the plan, that's the process? Well, I mean, the general process of any case is, you know, once the individual is arraigned and, and they enter a plea, presumably, you know, a not guilty plea, then... You know, there's certain stages. The next most critical phase will be what's called a preliminary hearing, which is in, in some sense a mini trial. And it's it's the burden is on the people, meaning the prosecution, to prove to a judge that there is sufficient evidence to make that individual stand trial on all the charges that they're accused of. 
And so at that time, and I, I can't answer the question of when that will happen. You have to always remember in any criminal case, the defendant has a right to a, you know, a fair trial, but also to be prepared and his lawyers have a right to be prepared. So, you know, having that in mind, you know, in a case of this magnitude, they have a lot of work themselves, the defense. So we have to be mindful that they have a right to be prepared. So, you know, it's a balancing act of trying to, you know, be efficient, move the case, but also understand, you know, the constitutional rights of the defendant. So I can't tell you when, I can just tell you that, you know, the team is working very hard to be prepared for that, but that'll be the most significant hearing next. And then from there, the next critical thing, primary critical thing would be the trial. And when that happens, I can't answer. It'll be a while. But a defendant has to enter a plea before you would go to preliminary hearings? Right. I mean, that's, it's almost, I don't want to say it's procedural, but you you know, they're accused of a charge. They have to either say they're guilty or not guilty. And so... Is there a time limit on that? Do they have X amount of time or they can take as much time as they want? They can take as much time. In fact, some counties are different, but in our county, a lot of times they just don't enter a plea because once they enter a plea, then there are clocks that start by the penal code. So, you know, in this particular situation, you know, he has not entered a plea yet, but once he does and, you know, then some of these, but that's just, you know, that's the defendant's choice. Uh, based upon the advice of counsel. So it's not abnormal. Right. That makes sense. And then at the last court hearing, it was speculated the trial might cost taxpayers up to $20 million. I'm assuming there's no way around this, right? So if there isn't some kind of defendant, you know, pleading to an, an agree to plea agreement, is this something that the prosecution would be open to? Or do you feel like it's important this entire story play out in the courtroom? Oh, I think that kind of conversation is premature. You know, we're in the early phases of this prosecution. It's, you know, it's a case of enormous magnitude. So I, I don't think it's appropriate to comment on whether a plea would be considered because we're not at any kind of place at all for that. Right. And and again, I think, I think it is important you mentioned it before where, you know, for those of us who've been following the case for a while, you know, that's one thing, but we don't know all the details. We have not seen all the police reports, which obviously, as a defense attorney, you, you would probably get access to. So there is a ton of paperwork for these people to go through. Yes. And there's, you know, we're still in what we call the discovery phase, meaning that we're still collecting everything that we have an obligation to turn over. So while a large amount of discovery has been turned over, it's still a continuing process. All right. Well, I think we all will have to be patient. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's probably a good way to describe it. Yes. Well, uh, District Attorney Schubert, thank you so much. We will all be glued to this case as it moves forward. Hope you get everything you need to bring justice to the victims and the community. And thank you so much for being here and sharing your insight. Thank you very much. Bye. Since speaking with Sacramento County District Attorney Anne-Marie Schubert, the prosecution announced they would, in fact, seek the death penalty if Golden State killer suspect Joseph James D'Angelo is convicted. Unmasking a Killer supervising producer Todd Lindsay returns to discuss this new development and how the victims and their family members feel about the prosecution's intention. Okay, so 
we have with us back supervising producer Todd Lindsay. Hey, guys. Hey, welcome. Hey, so we want to catch up with you on all the exciting stuff that has happened in the last few weeks. Uh, first up, obviously, being the court date on April 10th, which uh, was initially expected to just be some legal proceedings and setting dates for future meetings. And then there was a big announcement that was made. Todd, why don't you share with us? Uh, well, the big announcement was that they're going for the death penalty against Joseph James D'Angelo. And uh, that came on the heels of our governor declaring a moratorium on the death penalty. So there seems to be some political infighting and intrigue going along with this case. Yeah, I mean, so obviously the moratorium as the governor, he he's not changing the law, right? He doesn't have that authority right there. But it is kind of a political statement for the DAs to say, well, we don't care. We're going to go for it anyway. Yeah, a huge political statement. And I think... You know, I've talked to a lot of the, the victims' families, and um, I know some of them are for it and some of them are against it. And I think that's probably, you know, that probably represents California as a whole. But I think if you have the death penalty on your books, if you're not going to use it for a case like this, I, I don't know who you're using it for then. Well, it's a really good point. And I mean, you've been following the case for so long. Are you surprised or do you think, no, you saw this coming? Well, I... I definitely hoped it would happen. I, I think, again, you know, if anybody deserves the death penalty, he does. But uh, I was a little surprised since uh, the governor had uh, declared the death penalty moratorium just recently that they came out immediately and said that we're going for the death penalty. So, again, there seems to be a little back and forth in the political arena for California concerning this case. It's interesting. Yeah. And it's also after talking to um, obviously some of her sources, at least I had interpreted it as we're not even really going to deal with the death penalty question until we're further along, maybe, you know, even after preliminary. So right. it, it did seem, you know, no one was expecting it to happen this soon. Right. It seems like they wanted to make a statement fairly quickly. So that's what they did. Yeah. Um, but we've also talked about uh, you and I on, you know, either death penalty or no death penalty, that so much of the power of having that charge on the books that you are able to levy it as a potential bargaining chip, as something where it's like, OK, look, we intend to seek it. And if you don't want that, you know, maybe we can come to some kind of plea agreement. And especially in a case like this, where there might be other victims and other crimes. And and really, we just all want answers. If Joseph D'Angelo is, in fact, guilty of this, then maybe that could persuade him to come to some kind of plea agreement. But he is of a certain age where, you know, if this case lasts eight years or 10 years, you know, California has a tendency to not actually execute any of their death row inmates anyway, then, you know, is it really at this point for show, you think, or or does it actually, does it serve a purpose? Well, I would like to think it serves a purpose, has, like you said, a bargaining chip. If he doesn't have the death penalty hanging over his head, what incentive does he have to come clean and speak to the DA and, and the investigators and and fill in the details of his criminal career. I mean, there's no incentive for that. The only incentive would be, we'll give you a life sentence if you cooperate. And, you know, that's happened thousands of cases, not just in California, but all over the country. So, you know, it's the one, like you said, the one bargaining chip that they have. So if you take that away, he would have no reason to ever speak to the DA or the detectives about any of his crimes. And he, you know, would just take his chances in court 
So it, you know, as a bargaining chip, I, I think it's still very valuable. Now, you weren't in court when this announcement was made, but you have been in um, constant contact with people who were in that courtroom. Have they told you kind of what that sentiment was like? Did they know it was going to be announced and, and what have been their reactions after? Well, one or two had heard that there was going to be a, a big announcement, but they didn't know quite what it was. But I think for the most part, they were surprised. And I think some of them, you know, some of the families will be unhappy and some of them will be encouraged by uh, this announcement by, was, was it all six DAs that, that made the announcement? I believe all six DAs were there, but obviously it's only uh, four DAs have death penalty eligible murder charges. And that right. would be the Orange County murders, Ventura, Santa Barbara, and then the majority homicides in Sacramento. Yeah. And, right. you, know, you know, given how split the families appear to be on death penalty versus no penalty, I mean, it must have been a really tough decision on their part, because no matter what, they're going to make about half of the people they're trying to get justice for very unhappy. Agreed. Although I would say to them, you know, the chances of him being actually executed are slim to none. He will he will die either in prison or death row before they ever get a chance to execute him. Uh, as you know, we have a moratorium, so it's not happening during Governor Newsom's reign as governor. But uh it may be reinstated with a new governor. So, again, I think it's just whether he wants to spend his prison time in a maximum security prison, uh, I guess in general pop, or at least being part of you know uh, protective custody in general pop, or does he want to spend his days on death row with a lot fewer amenities and they're a lot stricter on death row? So... Uh, I think that is what it boils down to. And we know he's a guy who likes to spend a lot of time outdoors. You know, they don't really give you a lot of time outdoors when you're on death row. So that would be something that I think that would actually affect him and, and cause him to maybe um, decide to come clean and make a deal. Uh, hopefully. Yeah. Well, but I think it's also, you know, as a district attorney, you are, you know, sworn to uphold the law. And I think, like you said, that charge is on their books. And while it is in their discretion, you know, if they don't intend to seek death penalty in a case like this, like which other case would you then ever seek the death yeah. penalty on? So <laughs> I don't know. But we we have some of the country's worst serial killers sitting on death row since the late 70s and 80s that have never been executed. So I can't see him living long enough to ever see the executioner. So I think it's just prison conditions. Right. Which one do you want? And so at least they have something to hold over his head in order to get a deal. So, you know, that's what I would tell, you know, the families that are anti-death penalty. But listen, you know, they're very reflective of the California population as a whole. You know, it's it's very split, split almost evenly. Just depends which poll you read. It seems like the death penalty people who are pro death penalty are a little bit more numerous, but it's it's pretty even. So I would expect to see that in any huge complicated case such as this one. Sure. And then Todd, while we have you, we also wanted to talk about you know the Sam Stanton Sacramento Bee 
article that came out that revealed Joseph James D'Angelo was in Sacramento County Jail custody in, yeah. it, back in the mid-90s. Obviously, you know, at this point, you could think of a, as a hilarious misunderstanding, although I think at the time he sure did not think it was funny. Right. But what were your uh, what was your reaction when you read that? Well, I mean, it didn't surprise me. Um, I think what we were surprised by is how little interaction he had with the police, you know, while he was hiding away because he's very arrogant and we know that he had a penchant for shoplifting and stealing things. And so I'm surprised this didn't happen to him uh, more. And, you know, there seems to be a little confusion on exactly what went down. I guess I kind of assumed that maybe he, you know, he had a, maybe the guy behind the counter, English wasn't his first language. So he had a hard time understanding him. And I kind of thought it was like maybe he he got away with some free gas. Maybe he pumped his gas, went in to pay. There was confusion, so he just left because that would be very much like him. Well, it was actually the other way around. So he went to a pump to pay and the pump malfunctioned and he did not get the gas he really paid for. So when he went inside to the gas attendant to try and get a refund, you know, I'm just imagining D'Angelo and the way that the neighbors described him as a temper, just losing patience, going, give me my money, give me my money. And if you don't speak the language well, you might be like, oh, my God, I'm being robbed because there's a guy asking me for money. Yeah. You know what? That's a really good point. And that sounds uh, like something that would have happened. Like you said, his his temper, I'm sure, got him into trouble all the time. Yeah. You know, you make you make a really good point, too, because he had that temper. Obviously, he's hiding out all these years. I mean, I think there's something to be said for the fact that he was just really lucky, you know, until he wasn't. And he was lucky for a very long time. Yeah. And we know that he probably continued, you know, after he well, we think he stopped um, with the murders, but I, I think he carried on with probably stealing small items whenever the opportunity arose. So, well, we know he made some more threatening phone calls to past victims after that anyways. So. Right. And there may have been more peeping Tom activity on his part in his neighborhood. So, yeah, I'm, I'm surprised he wasn't. I mean, obviously all speculation more. at this point, it's all right. alleged. But, you right. know, but I, I think that that seems in line with how people would profile him. Well, and I think, right. you know, with the profile of the Golden State Killer being very arrogant, I do think that like when the only reason we even know about this gas station incident is because Joseph James D'Angelo like filed a million dollar civil lawsuit against the gas station, you know, where I think I don't know if this would have happened to you or me. We're like, well, this was a horrible, horrible misunderstanding. And I'm so glad I'm just out of it now. And that, you know, my three hours in jail was a fluke. And I have a statement of factual innocence. And everyone acknowledged that I didn't do anything wrong. And I just want to put this whole thing behind me. He was like, no, I'm going to sue you for a million dollars. Right. But I think that goes along with his personality of uh, get something for nothing. He seems to have that his whole life. Well, we don't know the details of the settlement, but we do know that they settled. So he must have gotten indeed something. He got something. Out yeah. of it, right. But you're right. I agree with you. I would have dropped it, you know, maybe complained to whoever I needed to complain to about being arrested over this. But uh, other than that, yeah, moved on with my life. But, uh, you yeah, know, that's not JJD. And I think another really 
funny part of this is and because you always hear about these things on on the news of you know way we told people they want super bowl tickets or they they want this and then everyone shows up and then they all get arrested because it was a sting that like yeah. that's how they actually arrested <laughs> like he literally got a letter in the mail saying you want super bowl tickets come to this auditorium and he went well that was perfect for his personality yeah <laughs> i mean something for nothing again yeah so um, it's yeah, quite I'm sure amazing. He couldn't resist. Yeah. Well, for anyone listening, I think if you get a letter in the mail saying you want Super Bowl <laughs> tickets or just, anything else, yeah, just really think about. Wait, hold on one second. Could there be a warrant out for my arrest? Now, in his case, <laughs> in his case, he probably never knew because you know he probably legit, like it, you know, I mean, we know if he is indeed the Golden State Killer that he's hiding a lot. But he didn't think about it the year before having like driven away from a gas station and that gas attendant calling the cops after, you know. Right. I'm sure when he leaves a gas station, he feels like he got ripped off. A hundred percent. But and, and look, he had he had the wherewithal to go, OK, forget it, whatever it was, 20 bucks, 40 bucks, 60 bucks. It just wasn't worth it. And he left. I mean, right. it didn't come into a physical altercation. The guy clearly didn't understand him, wouldn't give him the money. And however angry and upset he was, he he did leave. He right. left. And if he crosses the line, he knows the cops are going to get involved. And that's the last thing right. he wants. So. Yeah. So he leaves before the cops can get there. But obviously he had his license plate. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Amazing. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Todd, for uh, calling in from this exotic location you're uh, vacationing in. Yes. And, um... Beautiful downtown Reseda, California. <laughs> as always man it's such a pleasure talking to you and uh boy it's been an amazing journey and, and, and really i feel like we're just getting started it really is uh and it's gonna keep going and i'm sure there'll be more surprises down the line and uh it'll be interesting to see how this all shakes out awesome thanks so much thanks guys Next week, Deputy Public Defender Quizan Malouf from the San Francisco Public Defender's Office shares some insight as to how Joseph D'Angelo's public defender may be preparing his case and what happens now that the prosecution has announced that they will seek the death penalty should there be a conviction in this case. For more on the Golden State Killer case, the complete Unmasking a Killer documentary series is available on demand at CNN Go. And you can find the Unmasking a Killer podcast at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Biagio Messina. And I'm Joke Vinciun. Thanks for listening. Hi, this is Andy Katz, host of March Madness 365, presented by Grammarly. This week on the podcast, listen as we break down the latest AP poll and give you insights on my updated Power 36. Listen to March Madness 365 with Andy Katz, presented by Grammarly, wherever you get your podcasts. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that gives your team an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. Grammarly works seamlessly across 500,000 apps and websites. Get personalized on-brand writing help everywhere your team works. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done.